This is Founders Talk, an interview podcast hosted by me, Adam Stachowiak, and we profile founders building businesses online as well as offline. And if you found this show on iTunes, we're also on the web at 5x5.tv slash Founders Talk. If you're on Twitter, follow Founders Talk and me, Adam Stack. Today's guest is Andrew Wilkinson, the founder of MetaLab. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Andrew Wilkinson. He is the founder of MetaLab, uh, MetaLabDesign.com. He's in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. He's uh, he's an awesome dude. He's an interface designer. Done some really fun stuff with his studio. And Andrew, I'm a huge fan of yours, dude. So thank you for coming on the show with me. Yeah, Adam. Of course. Thanks for having me. And as I understand, you got started in this this gig with MetaLab, I guess, uh, in 2006. But what happened, uh, I guess, before that? What give us some history about where you came from? Did you go to school? Did you were you part of startups? What got you into this mode to start up your own design studio? Yeah, so I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Vancouver, and uh, my dad was an architect, and he had a he, he had an all Mac office, and so I kind of. I would always go into his office and fool around with the computers, and I got really into um, into computers and tech and stuff. Um, and uh, when I was in tenth grade, my dad uh, merged with another architecture firm, and so we ended up moving to Victoria. Um, and for any of you that don't know Victoria, Vancouver is quite a large, uh, you know, major metropolitan city, uh, which I loved. And we moved to Victoria, which is, you know, smaller. It's like the capital city of BC, about 300,000 people. But to me, it felt like moving to the boonies. I didn't know anybody. It was where my grandparents lived. Uh, and so we moved out. And the one perk of doing that uh, was that my parents felt pity, you know, had pity on us. And uh, they got us cable internet. And so I basically just locked myself in my room for the summer uh, and was nerded out, didn't really know anybody uh, and I ended up meeting this guy from Hawaii, and he was another, um, you know, Mac nerd. And uh, we decided that we were going to start uh, writing a blog, or you know, this is kind of the time before blogs even existed. So it was just the tech news site. What year was uh, this again? This was this was oh god, this was in two thousand one. Okay, was that was like definitely before late, the year of blogging then. Late two thousand one, way back when. And so there was this website called Mac Teens, uh, incredibly, incredibly nerdy. But the idea was that it was a kind of a community and a tech site for um, for and by teenage Mac users. And uh, so anyway, I got really into that and I started writing articles and reviewing stuff. Uh, and our audience grew and we broke some stories. Uh, we started selling advertising, not enough to do anything with really, but you know, enough for us to cover yeah. our bills and have a hundred bucks here and there. Which Make was, it worthwhile. Yeah. And we got review units at the time. This was like, this is amazing to me. And uh, it also enabled me to go down to San Francisco for Macworld uh, and so I got to travel, um, and I, I out of it. I mean, I got to interview Phil Schiller uh, wow. and a bunch of Apple execs. I got to meet Steve Jobs. Uh, I went to a uh, like a private um, before any of the Apple stores opened. The first one was the one I believe it was the first one was in um, 
in New York, and I went to the like the press opening of the Apple New York store with about 15 other people, and got a private tour with Steve Jobs, and got to shake his hand, and you know, felt like I was going to crap myself every moment of it. <laughs> but uh, it was really just an amazing experience for you know a wiener 16 year old who's uh, just kind of stumbled into this. So you were um, 16 when you got started. Then that, that's that's crazy. Yeah. Hey, yeah. before we before we keep going on, I hear some sort of scratching when you're. I don't know if there's if you're is it, rubbing uh, on the uh, mic area or something like that, but I hear some scratching and okay. uh, listeners, if you're hearing this, that happens sometimes. So I apologize about that. That does that does take place a little bit. Is it is it is it this? Yes, yeah, that. Oh, okay. that's the sound. I think it's the uh, the mic on my headphones. So I'll just hold it out. Is it, do you hear it now? You wear? Do you have a beard? I a little bit, a little bit. That's that's probably what it is. Then, yeah, hold yeah. it out a little bit, and you'll be yeah. Now you is sound it better perfect. Now? You don't hear it now. Okay, you sound you sound perfect. Cool. So you're you went to New York. You're 16 years old. You started a blog with a friend who was also a Mac nerd. You got to meet Steve Jobs, and you know, truth be told, now uh, your Skype handle. Can we say your Skype handle? Sure. It's <laughs> Cult of Jobs. I wasn't sure if you're, you know, it. um, it's Cult of Jobs, and I was thinking you must be a big fan of Steve Jobs, and obviously you're a designer, which you've done with uh, Meta Labs. So that's that's kind of wild. So you got to meet one of your heroes way early on in your career. That's that's amazing. Yeah. No, I was. I I think I was really fortunate, and you know, it's not like I got to know him personally or, you know, even had a chance to have a real interaction with him because he was in press mode. But uh, it really did make an impression on me, and it was a really cool experience. The problem was, from there, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't really think that I wanted to start... um, you know, a blog. That wasn't my passion necessarily. Um, But I ended up graduating from high school and deciding, you know what, I'm going to go to journalism school. Maybe I'll try this out. Uh, And so when I graduated, I went to Toronto. I went to Ryerson, which is um, widely considered, you know, the best best journalism school. Yeah, it's a big deal um, for journalism. And so I moved out to Toronto and I did that for about um, five months, and it just wasn't working. On the first day of class, they basically said, you know what, this is a tough industry. Uh, you're going to be making like 35 grand a year for like the first 10 years. You're going to have to go bust your hump at like some newspaper in the middle of nowhere to make a name for yourself. Uh, and that just wasn't jiving for me. I mean, I was used to running my own thing and, you know, doing a lot of creative writing and stuff. So I ended up moving back home after five months. Uh, and I went and I lived in my parents' basement and I was so depressed. I had no idea what I was going to do with myself. Uh, and so and I, at this time I'm working at a coffee shop and I'm just kind of feeling terrible. And uh, I decided that, you know, I'd never really built anything. I'd written about tech and I'd been really involved in the community, but I'd never actually built anything with my hands. And so I decided that I would learn how to, um, you know, how to do HTML and CSS I read a couple books. I started fooling around in Photoshop, and uh, I managed to get a job, amazingly, within about two and a half weeks, um, which I entirely chalk up to my preternatural preternatural ability to do well in job interviews. I don't know how I pulled that off because I was completely unqualified. Uh, So anyway, I worked for this company for a couple months, and then I bounced to another one, uh, another design firm, but I was really just doing 
like data entry and very basic work. Um, and just from observing um, the way that things were going at the company, I realized that, um, you know, I saw them making a lot of choices that I wouldn't make. And I was constantly kind of thinking, you know, oh, hey, we can, we can grow this business, we can do better. Um, but I wasn't really allowed any say. And I ended up getting frustrated and I kind of quit in a huff. I had a bad meeting with my boss and I quit. And I realized I had $500 in the bank and I had to make my rent within the next week. Uh, and so I ended up just kind of starting MetaLab. I came up with a name and I had a couple sleepless nights building my portfolio and getting everything together. Uh, and I just started sending out emails to as many people as I could and looking on job boards. Um, shortly thereafter, I was able to land two contracts, one with a startup in New York uh, called Mogulus, which was turned into Livestream, and another in San Francisco, which sold a while ago called Offermatica. Uh, and within about three weeks, I was waking up whenever I wanted. I was making about three or four times what I was making before. I was able to start contracting out work. And I just kind of, I really got lucky. I think it was mostly timing. That is amazing to me how you can just, this world that we're in today, you know, like, I don't know if it's always been like that, where you could just kind of make it like that, you know, just yeah. kind of just jump into it. And that's the unique thing about the web world, especially, and you can, we'll probably talk about this more with the explosion of mobile and what that's doing and having new devices like the iPhone, the iPad to design and develop against and just the prolificness of, of what we have available to us and how you can just jump in. Yeah. I, but like you said, also get lucky too, in, in a sense. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is um, some of it's timing, and some of it, you know, definitely the experiences that I had running that tech blog helped. I was a good, you know, a good writer, and I knew how to I knew how to do phone calls and all that kind of stuff. But I think the coolest thing, the, the gift that we have, is that we can look um, as big as we want to. So even yeah. though I was, you know, a, a 19 year old whose voice cracked, uh, sitting in my apartment with in my boxers, I could look like a relatively large design agency because the website is all anyone was going off of. And I was dealing with people remotely. So here I am doing meetings with people saying, oh yeah, that's how we like to work and our process and all this kind of stuff. Uh, just kind of bumbling my way through it. Um, but it was, yeah, I think it was just you realize pretty quickly that you you can basically look however you want. You can look how, as big as you want. No one needs to know how how many employees you are you have or where you're located or anything like that. It kind of reminds me of of something that was said in the, a movie called Boiler Room, and I'm trying to recall why why am I having a, a brain fart? I can't recall who said it, but he says act as if. Right? Can you right. help me out? Do you remember the movie? Totally, totally. Yeah, I don't remember it, the exact line, but I think that's very true. Yeah, act as if you know. Act as if you're the owner of the company. Act as if you're yeah. you know somebody more badass than you are right now. Totally. Um, you know, and that's that's something the web world can let you do, but you can only fake it for so long. You still have to own up. Like you had good design behind you. So what do you, what do you think? I guess before we go too deeply into your story, what is, what is MetaLab? I guess now it probably has a different meaning to you or a different uh, way you, you say who you are, but it probably changed since 2006. But what is MetaLab for the listeners that uh, don't know who it is? So, yeah, so it started out, um, really just me doing consulting work. So, um, 
the th- one one I think one good choice that I made early on was to decide to focus on a niche. We weren't going to do print design. We weren't going to do uh, brochure websites. We weren't going to do anything like that. We were going to focus on web startups and interface design. Um, and I think that put us in a unique position. So essentially, I started pitching this idea, you know, we're an interface design agency. Um, and so we built this really great consultancy uh, where, you know, five years later, we're working with companies like Google, Disney, NBC, Jawbone, TED, like just amazing organizations, yeah. uh, which I'm staggered by, you know, I just would never have thought at the time. <laughs> but uh, so we built that. And then we also built, um, you know, a very successful software business as well as a digital goods business at the same time. So Metalabs become like a, a bit of a, like a weird little empire. Yeah. And you're doing interface work for clients at the same time you're building your own products. And uh, prior to actually pushing the record button for this call that everybody's listening to, we had a chance to kind of talk about how you, you've actually broken up your company. What, tell us about how your company's actually broken up to, to this day right now. So, yeah, the way we started, we originally, so we're a consultancy, we're focused on client work, um, and uh, we decided that we didn't want, we didn't want to take any venture capital or anything like that. We just wanted to bootstrap our own products and build them in our spare time. So during the day, I would be doing uh, client work, and then, you know, a couple hours a night, we started working on um, our first piece of software. I think it was in 2008, late 2008, uh, not a good time to be building things, let me tell you, because the economy is crumbling and everything else. But this was the light at the end of the tunnel. But so I would spend my evenings uh, working on Ballpark, which was um, it's basically something that we built to scratch our own itch. So we were receiving, um, you know, like 20 emails a day from various people that wanted to work with us. And we didn't have an easy way to keep track of all the estimates we'd sent out, you know, where our deals were at, that kind of stuff. And so we built this very simple web app uh, to use internally to keep track of that stuff. And then we started sending out estimates to clients and they were going, whoa, cool, this looks really neat. What are you guys using? Um, and at that point, we realized that we had a, you know, a real piece of software on our hands. So we added invoicing and a couple other features, and we released it to the public. Um, so at that point, it was just we're a consultancy, and in our spare time, we're building. You know, we're building some of these apps. Um, but then, in the last couple of years, the software business has grown very significantly to the point where it didn't make sense to try to juggle two things. So we didn't want our, you know, we didn't want our clients to receive subpar service just because our servers crashed or something like that. And so um, we built Flow in, uh, Jesus, when was it? 2010, I think. Um, and uh, we, in the process of doing that, we actually divided it out as its own company. So our software companies split up um, so we've got our consulting company, we've got our software company, which does ballpark and flow, and then we've got our Tumblr theme, uh, and now Shopify theme business, uh, Pixel Union. And each of these companies uh, has its own staff, its own payroll, but we all kind of work in the same umbrella and share ideas, share an office, that kind of thing. Did you just stumble into, uh, I guess this is ballpark, the first app was more of a, a homegrown thing because you needed it and you just sort of turned it into an app because people demanded it from you. Is that more or less what happened? Yeah, definitely. And then what about Flow? I mean, how do you get into this? I mean, give us an intro to Flow. You, you kind of introed what ballpark is, but what is right. what exactly is Flow? So, I mean, really when we started building it, the last thing I wanted to do was make yet another to-do app. I did not. I had no interest. It's a crowded space, um, but 
basically, um, in 2009, I had a kind of productivity breakdown. I was, you know, managing, suddenly I'd gone from, you know, a one-man show to six and then 10 and then 15. And I was really struggling to keep my head above water just using email. And so I got really obsessed with GTD. I read the book. I even had like a you actually can pay GTD coaches. You do a weekly phone call with these guys from David Allen's company and they, they you know, talk to you about your workflow and they coach you through your troubles and stuff. And so I was hardcore. I got really into it. Um, and I was using OmniFocus. But I realized that the problem with OmniFocus was that it was just on my desktop and I couldn't delegate to anyone. Um, and so I got really frustrated because I ended up having to use all these different tools. I would use OmniFocus to manage everything that included me, but then as a company, we had to use Basecamp. And then if I had a single task, like let's say I had to ask somebody to take some documents to the lawyer, I had to send them an email, and then I had to remember to follow up with the email and OmniFocus. It just meant lots of back and forth, uh, you know, recursively recreating tasks. So um, my friend Tom Robinson is one of the guys who made uh, Cappuccino, which is um, a framework that got bought by Motorola a little while ago. But it essentially allowed people to build Cocoa apps or Objective-C apps uh, in the browser. And he had kind of said to me, like, hey, you guys should try building something with this. So um, one of our devs had some spare time. So I just said, like, you know, hey, let's just try building a simple to-do app. So we started doing that. Um, we realized Cappuccino wasn't really doing it for us. It just wasn't far enough along. But the app, uh, we, we started to kind of build some features that we really liked around delegation. We started using it as a company. Uh, and then we realized, like, okay, this is actually, again, you know, this is a real product. We should do something with this. Um, and so we started hiring a bunch of people and investing a lot of uh, energy into building this app. And um, 10 months later, we had uh, Flow, which is, I guess I describe it as... Um, basically it's a way to get things done with anybody in your life. So it brings every kind of project and every person in your life into one place. Um, so I can delegate to my personal assistant. I can collaborate on a project with my girlfriend. I can deal with the home renovation or, you know, an important um, project with my team at work all in one place and it's all firewalled and separated. So there's no more jumping between apps or personal and work. It's all in one place. And you said you, you kind of invested in new hires and how much, how much dollars did you put into this at first and what kind of sources of validation did you use? I mean, beyond your own actual needs and probably even seeing some of the earlier versions of it and getting excited, what what were some of the things that you used to validate to say, okay, we can truly be a smaller shop but grow 15 people or grow 12 people? Because right, right. I think you've got like 12 people on, the, on staff just on flow, right? Yeah, we do. Now we do. At the time, it was, um, I think there was four kind of core people. We had, um, you know, a front-end developer, a Rails de- two Rails developers, uh, and then a designer, uh, Luke, who actually was my first employee way back when. And then he ended up going to New York, taking a job, and we pulled him back onto the project um, for Flow, which was, which was great to have him back. Um, but in terms of validation, I mean, we just used it internally and we realized, like, hey, this is really useful. Why hasn't anybody done this? Um, we didn't really 
um, you know, we, we did a little bit of a pilot program. We shared it with a couple other companies. We shared an office with another web development firm and we'd, we'd get them to test it out and see what they thought. Um, but really we just kind of took a gamble. Um, I don't really, I've always been, um, relative, relatively, uh, unconcerned with risk. I think, you know, I'm in my twenties, this is the time to do it. And, uh, I generally trust my gut. And I mean, so far that's served me well. Um, you asked in terms of dollars we spent. So building ballpark, we did that very, very lean. I think in total over a year, we only spent $30,000. Um, we had a, it was just me and a part-time rails developer, a little bit of help from a friend doing front end, um, flow. We went big. I think we spent about, uh, $550,000 or something like that, which was definitely a big check for us to write. But uh, at that time, the, the business, the consulting business had grown enough that it wasn't really a huge issue. When did Flow start? What was that, uh, in 09 or was it uh, in 10? It was 2010. So okay. we launched, I think we launched April of, April 2011, and it was about nine months to beta, and we're in beta for two months or so. We just kind of had an invite-only beta to start getting some feedback. Um, but it's been amazing. I mean, we've seen uh, just like hockey stick growth, especially in the first couple months when we first got out there. It was the sort of thing um, where we really saw validation. Then suddenly, you know, we got on TechCrunch, Daring Fireball, Mashable, all those guys and we literally went from zero revenue to about $20,000 within the first three weeks. Um, so that was amazing. Uh, it's just continued to go from there. So it's been really successful. Where did you learn how to, uh, like you said, with, with um, learning design and learning other things you've learned before you kind of dive into it, like GTD, GTD, you kind of went nuts about it. But where did you learn how to build business? Like, is this something you just threw yourself at or did you have any mentors like what is your secret sauce here i mean five hundred fifty thousand dollar check thrown down i mean you're probably doing some great design like you said you're doing work for disney and other people but where did you get the chops to do all this well yeah it's 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 a really difficult question i think you know there are various um you know, some of it's through osmosis. I think my father, um, you know, he was an entrepreneur. He started his own company. But as a kid, he'd always say, um, you know, whenever I'd come up with any kind of idea, he'd be coaching me. He'd be saying, okay, how could you turn this into a business? You know, what would you do? Like I started, I helped this old lady that I met. Uh, I helped her out with her computer. And immediately the first thing my dad says is, oh, you know, you could start this company where, you know, you do this consulting stuff with, you know, all these old people. And then you could go to old folks home and you could market it to them. And I think, so I kind of grew up with that mode of thinking being. How to make it a business, basically. Exactly. But in terms of, I think um, Jason Fried from 37 Signals says that, you know, making money is a skill that you learn. And I think building Building a successful, profitable business is really the challenging part. Um, and I think it's really just something you learn from trial and error. I mean, Ballpark, it still doesn't make us a lot of money. It's a, you know, it's a very small product. Um, we love it. We think it's great. But um, it's just not, it's not a crazy moneymaker. And I think 90% of that is due to marketing. Um, marketing and just not, not knowing. We just didn't know what to do. We were so young and we were just kind of starting out. And so... We didn't necessarily fail, but we stumbled and we didn't optimize it. Uh, and so f- every time that we've built something new, I think we get better and better at it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's been great. And definitely, 
you know, reading, I read a ton, um, a lot of, um, a lot of business and stuff. Uh, and I just try and talk to people. I think a lot of this industry really is, it does come down to who, you know, um, to some degree, I'm just able to call up, you know, amazing entrepreneurs who have done it all before and are a couple of years ahead, um, and kind of have like an informal advisory board essentially. So, you know, like being able to call the guys from Shopify up and say, Hey, you know, how do you guys do your AdSense or your Google AdWords advertising or, um, you know, Anthony, Anthony Casalento from Squarespace, always helpful for anything. So, um, you know, these guys are out there. You just got to connect with them. It's funny you mentioned that. I'll, I'm going to pause for a second and say that Anthony, I, I invited him on the other show I ran for a while. They're called the Web 2.0 show. And I haven't gotten back in touch with him again to invite him on to Foner's talk. But um, I, I've always been a fan of Squarespace. But you said you have this informal advisory board. And I didn't have this on my notes to ask you this question. But, uh, you know, what do you do there? Do you just have a question? You're like, let me. Like, how many people are on this list? Who's on this list besides well, the people you mentioned? Okay, so, uh, yeah, I don't have, when I say informal, I mean very informal. It's this sort of thing where Friends. I'll yeah. randomly, yeah, there's buddies, people I'll randomly call up. Um, but, yeah, my kind of primary people that I talk to a lot, um, we recently just made our first angel investment in my friend uh, Stuart Bonesse's company, uh, MediaCore. Media I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's basically a way for anybody to start their own video site and monetize it. I have um, heard of MediaCore, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So we, we, uh, I'm an investor in his company, but we're also very good friends. Um, and he's local. He's here in Victoria. We actually shared an office. He's probably, you know, uh, my closest confidant in terms of business stuff. And, you know, we just have kind of come up together. Um, the Tumblr guys are great. Uh, I've been friends with David for a couple of years and John, who's their CEO. Um, they're always extremely helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of there's lots of people who have been great, but it's again, it's the sort of thing I just will randomly call them up, and you know, I try and make sure that I actually have something to say back and can contribute to them, and you know, sometimes I can. So let me ask you a question that maybe your dad would have asked you. Then, so how could you turn that into a business? <laughs> well, I think there's um, there's some people doing some interesting things with that. Uh, I know you interviewed. Dan Martell, yeah. uh, and I won't, I won't say anything, but I've talked to Dan, and it seems like a problem that he's looking at pretty hard, and I think he could do some interesting stuff with it. He might be um, doing something interesting, though. Clarity, is that what you're speaking of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah no, it's neat. I checked that out recently, um, and I think that's a, that's a really cool concept. But again, I don't know. I think it has to be, whenever something becomes a financial exchange, I think the relationship totally changes, and the advice that you get changes. So, for me, I mean, you know, Anthony Casalenta, like, it's not like I walked up to him and went like, oh, hey, man, like, I really love your work. And I, you know, I really want to, I need your help. I want you to be my mentor. Uh, we just kind of hit it off and, you know, had a drink together and ended up talking for three hours and, you know, had a lot in common. Um, and so these are guys I'm not, you know, I view them as peers. It's not like they're yeah. these guys who I'm, you know, sitting down, wise old men that I'm sitting down with once a week and picking their brains. But I just don't think that, I don't think that if you start to make it into a monetary thing, I just don't think it's the same. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. There's um, actually a future guest, Peter Cooper, has given me uh, quite a bit of advice. Um, we've had a couple conversations, and prior to those Skype conversations, I didn't even really know Peter. I knew him from... Uh, a couple tweet exchanges or, you know, friends that are friends and something like that. But uh, he's not the only person I've ever gotten advice from, but he's uh, an example I can use because he's going to be 
uh, an upcoming guest on Founders Talk. But just like that, like people ask me, how do I get people on this show? In your case, um, you shot me an email, but most cases I'm just asking people to come on the show. And, and a lot of times just meeting people is just being human, right? Just asking and saying hello. Exactly. And I think that's one thing that I always find so bizarre. I mean, even like recently, um, so we're, you know, we're in Victoria and um, we're one of the, I would say we're one of the, you know, cooler, like younger companies in town, um, but we kind of fly under the radar. We don't, we're not really in on the scene here. We don't talk about it a lot, but there are people that, you know, I end up, um, like we recently interviewed somebody, a front end developer and, uh, you know, I'm saying, she, she's saying, oh, I've been following your work for years and it's really cool. And I'm just kind of thinking like, you knew about us for years. Why didn't you just get in touch? Why didn't you reach out? And she's kind of going, oh, you know, I was intimidated. Like, and the thing is like we were talking about before you hit record, I mean, people just, um, people think that, you know, that these people are untouchables, that they're, they're just going to delete your email or anything, but they're just as human as anyone else. We're all just dudes and we love, you know, we've all been in that position before. So, I mean, pretty much anytime any young entrepreneur or old entrepreneur for that matter emails me, I'm totally attentive. I love giving advice and I found that most successful entrepreneurs do. So do you, uh, do you have a Clarity.fm account then, speaking of Dan Mortel? I, I think I'm signed up, but I'm not actually. I haven't actually. As soon as he does it, I will totally, I will totally do that. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. And so I was thinking, like, uh, from this show, if, uh, I mean, this show will get listened to a number of times. You might even have somebody pick it up three months from now and, and listen to this yeah. conversation we're having. But if they want advice from you anytime in the future, uh, what's the best way to, uh, this is more of an ending kind of call question, but this isn't the yeah. end. But, like, if somebody wants to get advice from you, what's the best way to reach out to you? Just email me, really, or you know, tweet at me or something. Uh, fire me an email. It's andrew at metalabdesign.com. Uh, and just keep it short. I think one big problem that a lot of people have um, is they write really long, thoughtful emails, uh, which are great, and I love reading them. But I just when I look at them, I go, oh, damn, there's an hour of my time. And so I file <laughs> them away, and I don't get back to them for two months. So I think simple, quick questions, that kind of stuff, and also just offering value. I mean, having something that would be of interest to me that we could talk about or, you know, you know, maybe someone, let's say someone really knows SEO saying, Hey, I'd love to help you out with your SEO. I need some advice though. I mean, that's always great too, but really I'm just, I love talking about this stuff. All right. Let's take a turn to a different direction and uh, talk about, I guess some of the stuff we talked about a little earlier with building MetaLab, but uh, you wrote this article in uh, .NET Magazine, and there's a lot of good topics in here that I'd like to kind of dive into a, a little deeper, maybe a little deeper than you've talked about in this article. But it, it, we both know, based on this call, that you know, you're know you a one-man band. When you first started out, you're the person that had the idea to start it, started everything else, uh, learned how to run your own business. Uh, you know, you got to thank your father for being an entrepreneur as well and, and giving you some of the early advice that he did. But you know, being a one-man band at, at first, what what are some of the things you can give uh, advice on against uh, the unsustainability of being a one-man band and when you should grow to being more than just yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one big problem in this industry is that a lot of people, um, you know, they wear, they wear um, how hard they work, how little they sleep as a badge of honor. And 
for me, um, I did the same thing for a long time. I, I, when I was starting out doing consulting work, I felt, I truly felt that, um, you know, I could do the best job. Um, and that, you know, while I needed people to help me, while I needed, you know, front end developers to help out and back end developers, cause that wasn't necessarily my special, my specialty. Um, I did, I did have this sense that, you know, I should take everything on my own shoulders because it'll turn out the best that way. Um, and what I realized is that that was really just being dishonest with myself because I am, um, you know, I get very excited about things. I get, you know, I, I, when I'm, when I'm interested in something, I just dive in and I obsess over it. But that Television. only lasts. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's laser focused and it only lasts briefly. And so what would happen is I'd start a consulting project and I'd be super excited about it. And I'd do the homepage and I'd do some key interface stuff. And then the client would follow through and say, okay, now we need to do 20 more pages. And I would just kind of blank, you know, black out. I just wouldn't want to do it. Um, and so I personally, I mean, I really embraced that eventually. And I started bringing on more designers to kind of help me with the follow through and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I realized that the output overall is much, much better when I had more people to delegate to. Um, and it's a really difficult skill to learn because, you know, you're still thinking based on the simplest things, you know, Oh man, should I, um, you know, should I be the one talking to our lawyer? Should I be the one dealing with these things? Cause you, you feel like people are going to miss things. Um, but what I, what I, what I realized is that um, what we tried, we tried at first getting designers and we'd get these designers in and they'd, they'd do, um, you know, they'd mess up a project. And what would happen is I'd go, okay, this is proof that this doesn't work. I would swoop in, I'd take over and, you know, that would keep happening. What we realized is that we need to let people put out their own fires and that if someone understands that they messed up and they fix it, they won't or sorry, they won't mess up again. Sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. They won't mess up again. And so um, we've really tried to embrace that. And now, um, you know, five years in, I literally don't, I mean, I don't touch anything that I don't need to. So I'm still very involved in the design process with all of our products and our consulting and everything. Everything still goes through me. But, you know, I don't, um, geez, I don't even fill up the gas in my car sometimes. I delegate absolutely everything in my life. Um, and I really try and trust the people, um, you know, hire good people and trust them to do what they need to do and only bother me if there's something that's, um, you know, really does need my feedback or whatever. But I've really embraced that. And the idea behind that is that, you know, they're, there's all these things, you know, in my day uh, where, you know, I, I would be pulled out of the office to, you know, go do errands and all these simple things in my life. Why wouldn't I give that to somebody else who actually enjoys doing it and give them a job in the process and save myself, you know, a th thousands of dollars in billable hours and all sorts of other things that I can focus back on consulting or building my company. Um, you know, a lot of people see that stuff as lazy. They, they hear that you have a personal assistant and they scoff. Um, but for me, it's just a, it's a matter of numbers. I was going to ask you, I mean, some would say the, the exact opposite that, um, you know, some would say, you know, don't buy a brand new MacBook Pro. This is like kind of a little off topic, but I'm, I'm going to circle it back. Like, don't buy the latest, greatest because, you know, you should be saving more money for your business because you might have rougher times. Or don't hire somebody for that job unless you've done it before. Or don't hire anybody for that job at all because for, for whatever reason. So, I mean, you've been fortunate enough to be able to have success early enough to have the bankroll probably to to actually 
bring on some extra employees. But what about times whenever you're in a tougher position financially and not able to delegate or not able to even afford right. somebody to delegate to? What do you do then? Well, I mean, I started out um, the way that I did it originally was, um, you know, I'd get a I'd get a development slash design project, and it would, you know, let's say the budget's ten thousand um, dollars. I knew that was guaranteed income, and so I would be able to say, okay, I'm going to contract this. So I would find somebody that I liked working with, and I would contract that work to them. And the liability for me was minimal, but I had the help that I needed, um, and it allowed me to take on a lot more projects because if I tried to do the front end or the back end, it would take me three times as long. Um, so that kind of enabled me to in- increase my bandwidth. And I did that for the first uh, the first kind of two and a half, three years. We were just doing contractors. Um, and I didn't I didn't really I didn't delegate as much as I do now. Um, once we got to a you know a size where we were able to, um, we yeah we we really like we are very aggressive about growth and hiring and we found that um, you know, even even with the the guys that run my company, I have I have three guys. Uh, Mark heads up the consulting business. Uh, Liam heads up Pixel Union, and Luke heads up the software company. And even with those guys, um, I really am always pushing them to hire right before we need it. Um, and so we like to have people waiting in the wings. We we have a lot of resources, um, but yeah, I mean it's. It's scary sometimes. I mean, when when the economy goes sour, uh, we you know it's scary to have um, you know a hundred thousand dollar payroll to deal with every month. I mean, that's that's scary, but it's also enabled us to to make far more profit than we ever would. And I think at this point, we're in a position where we've really diversified ourselves, um, so that you know if if the software business. Uh, failed or had a really bad month, the consulting or Pixel Union can cover that and vice versa. So even if two of our companies fail, we've always got one that can kind of cover everybody. Um, so it's okay. But I understand that, you know, a lot of people can't necessarily do that. Yeah, it's a, it's tough to, and that's kind of nice too that you've diversified in that way where when one side is a little shorter, the other side can pick it up or um make up i guess in in different areas it's a it's a unique position you're in there and it's kind of like you said a little bit earlier it's not luck to get there but sometimes you're just in the right position or the right place the right time to 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 be fortunate the the way you've been fortunate now mm-hmm. we've um we've talked a lot about i i guess business in a sense and how you've become a little successful or maybe really successful i guess it depends on your perspective but um you've also done some pretty fun things out there and you're really good at design i don't know if this is a, a hot topic for you but i thought this was kind of unique whenever i was uh checking out some things to talk about the there, there's a couple of them and they both kind of tailor into design because that's obviously what you are right design studio yeah um one is your page you're killing me zappos and it was like a letter to tony shea what what brought this on and how much effort did you put into this even before you you actually published this so, yeah, that was basically, um, I guess that was in 2010, I think. But um, I kind of, I have a habit of when I see when I see bad design or what I perceive to be bad design, I really like to, you know, sit down for an evening and just kind of redesign it. I did it a while ago. Um, I think I did it in 2008 with Facebook. Facebook released a new design, which I really didn't like. And so I tweaked it and I emailed it to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, 
who uh, forwarded it to his designers, and I ended up meeting a bunch of those guys and having you know a bit of a debate with them and stuff. Um, so I've, I'd done that before, but basically I, I went to eat Zappos, and everyone's talking about Zappos as this you know amazing company with this great culture, um, and I was you know really impressed by their story. And then I went to their website, and there was just so many sloppy things going on, like poorly compressed images and really odd type margins and, you know, just very confusing choices. Uh, and so, you know, I decided, you know, screw it, I'll spend uh, an evening redesigning this. Um, so I did a, you know, simple redesign and I emailed it to Tony Shea and posted this public letter and stuff. Um, and it was, you know, it was a cool experience. I mean, it um, got posted all over the place. Um, and uh, I didn't get a response directly from Tony Shea, but I talked to their um, their head of their design team and we kind of chatted about, um, you know, where they're headed and they showed me some of the stuff they were working on with the redesign and stuff. Um, but yeah, it was really just a, it was a fun little, a fun little thing. I like to ruffle people's feathers now and then. Now, I was wondering was this a marketing experience or was it really just you having fun in one evening and you're like, eh, my friends are out, I'm chilling at home, uh, Zappos is cool, but their site sucks. Let me let me waste five hours and put up a page and right. do this little marketing. So what did it do marketing-wise in terms of bringing in – did you see a traffic spike? Did you see – you said you didn't get a letter back from Tony Shea, but you talked to their design team. What did it turn out in – like maybe your dad would say, you know, how did you turn this into a business? How did you make right. money from it? It was kind of – I would say it's in, it was inadvertent marketing. But any of the, any time that we're um, – you know, I, I definitely do. Well, not any press. I definitely believe that any press is good press to some degree. Um, so we did, um, like, for instance, we did um, this thing called Tumblize a couple years ago, and the idea was that we would make a Tumblr for people for nine hundred ninety nine dollars. Which we, you know, to me, I was like, wow, that's so cheap. It's you know a two page design. We're going to code it. We're going to customize everything. Let's try this out and see if we can do it. And uh, it was just a colossal failure, and we got written up on TechCrunch, and they were saying it was for trust fund kids, and they can't believe how expensive it is. And uh, so that you know that was pretty funny. But through that, we became the guys that people go to for Tumblr. Everyone you know went, okay, Metalab, they're the Tumblr experts. So we started getting a lot of work doing that stuff. Um, for the you know the Zappos thing, we definitely saw a big boost with that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was this sort of thing. I think anything to, um, you know, gain exposure is definitely worth it, but it certainly wasn't something that I was thinking like, oh yeah, this is going to be like our big, you know, 2010 marketing extravaganza or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah. That's, that's funny that you would say, or that they would say that nine ninety nine is for trust fund kids. Yeah. Cause I mean, I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I think a thousand dollars for your level of design and it's on Tumblr. It's a reliable platform. And I mean, oh, and every, every single project, that. we lost so much money and not so much, but we would almost always go over budget. Every pro, I think we did about 20 of those, uh, at that rate. And we found that, you know, everyone wants a couple different designs and they want to tweak it and everything else. And so it just wasn't, a sustainable business in any way. So you said you have Pixel Union. Did this was this like an early experiment to evolve into to what Pixel Union is today? So yeah, what happened was um, so David um, David Carp, who's the the founder of Tumblr, he actually was visiting Victoria, and so we went out for dinner. 
And uh, we started chatting and kind of talking about Tumblr and stuff. And he kind of encouraged us to do some themes. And so we built this theme called Fluid. Um, You know, again, I just designed it in a night and sent it off to one of our developers. And we posted it up on their theme garden. And within about six months, we were the number one theme. And we had like, I think we we have like some insane amount. I I don't know what it is, but it's over a million people are using this theme. Um, so we were like, again, you know, we got a little bit of exposure through that for Tumblr stuff. Um, so when Tumblr decided to launch their app or sorry, their theme store, we were the first in line. So they reached out to us and they said, Hey, we, we, you know, we need, we need you guys to, uh, build some themes for this. And, uh, at the time I was kind of thinking like, Oh, this might be cool. We'll make, you know, a couple grand a month, um, selling themes on here. So when it launched, um, we're basically just blown away. We just started uh, doing gangbusters sales and uh, we realized pretty quickly that there was a real business there. And so um, I started building a team around it. So we, I brought on Liam to kind of head it up and uh, we started hiring designers and developers and about a year, it's been about a year and a half, I guess, since we started doing that. And uh, it's now a million dollar business. Uh, what is this? I mean, iOS, what happened in 2007? This thing came onto the scene. We we know already that Steve Jobs is one of your um, heroes from early on. You got to meet when you were 16. You were fortunate enough. But, I mean, what is iOS and what is this changing for software? You, you know, you're in the software business. You're in the interface design business. But what is this doing to software having the iPad? And, and just, I mean, other, obviously, there's other platforms too, not just the iPhone and the iPad. But, I mean, what is what is happening right now in the software world? Well, I think I think it's just making it so much easier to deliver deliver this stuff. I mean, you know, in the past you're dealing with, you know, originally you know CDs and DVDs and all that kind of stuff, and even web apps are kind of hard for people to understand. Um, you know, I talked to even like my dad about what we do, and I don't know if he totally understands what a web <laughs> app is or how it works, and so I think. What's beautiful about you know iPhone applications is they've got this whole ecosystem. Um, you know, it's a challenge certainly to um, you know do well in 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 it because there's so much there's so much noise out there. There's so many so many people competing. Um, but I think it's really kind of a yeah like a democratization. It's really suddenly it's so easy to do this. Just like it was easy a couple years ago for me to start you know the company. Now it's really easy if you're if you've got basic development skills and stuff, you can become a multimillionaire without really any investment, uh, just, you know, a little bit of your time, a little bit of marketing, and there you go. And you said earlier that uh, Meta hasn't taken any VC funding. What, what do you think that, what do you think VCs say to something like that, for, for someone like you saying something like that? I think they think we're stupid. Um, <laughs> I think, I think uh, a lot of people, um, it, I mean, it really depends on who you talk to. I mean, I talked to a lot of my friends who, um, you know, have bootstrapped their companies and now they're sitting pretty and they're making, you know, more money than they know what to do with. And they own a hundred percent and they can do whatever they want every day. Um, but then, you know, there's always, there, you know, there's two different worlds. There's the bootstrappers and then there's the startup guys. And we've worked with a lot of the startup guys. Um, I think 
you know, the big problem with VC money is that you're looking at a three to five year exit, which is fine if you want to be, you know, a serial entrepreneur. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, certainly. But um, it's just not for me. I'd like to hold on to the things that I build and I I like to play the long game. Um, And so for us, it just hasn't been something that we've needed or really wanted. I mean, we've had a lot of... um, you know, a lot of uh, venture capital firms come and talk to us. And um, I think, you know, we could certainly do a round if we wanted to, but um, we just haven't really seen the need. We've essentially, with our company, we've built our own incubator. So, you know, we've got these companies and they're all profitable and they all spit off, you know, a whole bunch of money every month. And we can choose if we want to start a new company, we just incorporate one and we put $20,000 into it and uh, we start, we get going. And until, you know, I see an opportunity where I realize that, you know, having $10 million, uh, you know, in the next three months is going to be critical to the growth of a company. I just don't think that I would really uh, look to VC. I guess um, I've got one, maybe two more topics I want to talk to you about before we I got a couple questions from some friends on Twitter that have uh, a couple little unique questions for you. But um, Steve uh, Jobs, somebody near and dear to your heart, said, good artist copy, great artist steal. And you've actually had to deal with something like this. And I'm not sure how sensitive this topic is, but um, we talked uh, a little bit before uh, we actually hit the record button on the great mozilla debacle and what this all translated into and they from what i understand they essentially took your website design and and use it for jetpack and they contacted you about it but what what happened here when why do you think that they took your design is it because it's just so badass or is this because they thought they were liberated enough to do so yeah, that was, it was honestly, it was kind of a, it's just a really funny story. We, we you know, no hard feelings tw- towards them or anything like that, but uh, we found it kind of astounding. So what happened, um, we were contacted by the Jetpack team um, for an estimate. They wanted to do some design work with us. And so Mark contacted them and he, you know, had a phone call and uh, sent off an estimate and they ended up coming back to us and just saying, sorry guys, you know, this is more than we can afford right now. Um, and so that was fine. They walked off. Um, and then maybe like three months later, I get this link on Twitter and someone says, you know, oh my God, look at this. And we go to the new, to check out the new Jetpack design. And it's literally the Metal Lab website, like pixel for pixel with our logo removed. And, uh, you know, they've swapped a couple of content areas, but we looked at it and we literally took our PSD and we laid it over and it matched up exactly. They'd taken our image assets, everything. Um, and, you know, it's not like, let's say Walmart did this or somebody who's using it to make you know, astounding amounts of money, I would be really infuriated. But we just found this so bizarre. It was just so blatant that they'd copied this. And so, um, you know, I emailed uh, Aza Raskin and some other guys there and just said, this is ridiculous. Um, But I I made a blog post about it uh, because I was just so flabbergasted. Now you were on Hacker News. You were on TechCrunch. Uh, we were all over the place, and it was it was bizarre. I mean, the responses that we got. I mean, a lot of people were on our side, but there are a lot of people saying like, "Oh, quipping whiners, like you know, open source your designs, <laughs> you know, all those kind of troll guys." Um, but anyway, yeah, it was bizarre. So we ended up talking to John Lilly, who's the CEO of Mozilla, and he apologized. And um, you know, we we it was fine. It was just 
it was hilarious. It was so this totally wasn't a joke. Ridiculous. It was for really, really, we're going to do that. Oh yeah. No, they had it all coded up and stuff. It was, it was insane. They'd featured it in one of their videos and they, they said, Oh, um, their response was like, Oh, we were just going to use this. It was, it was a prototype. It was just like a filler design, but they featured it in their videos and all their marketing materials and stuff. So I just didn't buy that. And uh, that, that's, uh, that is so wild. I, I wonder if the person who made the decision to, I guess, be a great artist and steal from you, <laughs> um, um, I wonder if they got fired. <laughs> I, I don't know if he did. I think it was like a, a front-end developer. They kind of blamed, they said like, oh, it was like a guy, like a, a rogue agent acting on his own. But the funny thing about it is like they saw the designs, they went to our website, like they knew what it looked like. But uh, yeah, anyway, no hard feelings or anything like that. I think we're all good. So I just got uh, two more questions for you. Um, friends on the Twitter have asked. One, I think he's a design student. He says, um, since we're talking about design, he said, "What did you learn to? What did you do to learn design? And how do you do? How do you use such simple design, but yet be so effective with it? And do you have any tips for for students?" Yeah, I think. Um like like making money or business or anything else. It's just a process of doing it over and over and over again. I think, um, you know, I mean, the, the whole Malcolm Gladwell thing, the 10,000 hours to reach mastery, I really do think it's true. I just, I put in the time. I mean, for the first three years of running the company, I was up every night until 5 a.m. just designing stuff nonstop. Um, and I think you reach a point where um, you're just able to kind of synthesize things to make them easily understandable. And it's very simple things. I mean, I often look at, you know, I look on Dribble and I see a lot of, you know, incredibly impressive um, design up there. Like I'm blown away by the level of detail and I kind of, I'm going like, how the hell did this guy do this? I have no idea how to do this in Photoshop. But when I actually see the design or the interface, it's not immediately under easily understood or there's, you know, poor visual hierarchy. I think that's one thing that I see a lot. Um, and so I think being able to focus uh, on taking things away or making things smaller or, you know, really simplifying elements, that's kind of where we've shone. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's tough. I think it's really just the sort of thing that you do have to put in the time with and do it over and over again. And uh, <clears throat> might even be a mutual friend of ours, but his name is Chris Bowler. He is the yeah. gentleman that runs, or I Fusion guess ads. previously ran Fusion yeah. Ads. Yeah. They sold, I think, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you might even see this because he sees you on Twitter. He says, how do you get uh, your hair to stay in place so nicely? <laughs> a ridiculous, ridiculous amount of uh, hair gel. <laughs> and for the listeners out there, uh, check the show notes. I'm going to post a link to... I hope you don't mind. Please tell me right now if you do. But I'm going to post a link to the .NET Magazine article that you did because I think that's one of the – probably that might be the image of you that he might be thinking of about your hair and how you have it so perfectly wavy and in place and it looks so nicely as he puts it. <laughs> Photoshop as well. Photoshop, also yeah, helps. Photoshop. Yeah. Uh, we didn't get to talk too much about Steve Jobs, but I mean you know, we talked about design there a little bit in terms of uh, – what he had meant to you. You got to meet him early on and you have this, uh, from what I understand, you even posted about um, a giant photo of, of him in your, in your office. But in closing, Steve Jobs, what, what, uh, what can you say about this phenomenal man? 
Um, so yeah, he, he was definitely, I mean, when we talk about, um, you know, my dad being influenced, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I just idolized him. I, um, you know, had read everything about him. I would, um, I just looked, I totally looked up to him and I, I think I kind of, um, oh, I, I think I, I wanted to recreate that kind of, um, you know, that amazing level of accomplishment that he had. He always talked about, you know, putting a dent in the universe. And I grew up really wanting to do that. Um, and that's kind of changed, I think, um, for me um, for a long time. Or, sorry, a little while ago that changed for me. Um, I kind of, so for the first couple of years of running my company, I would just drive myself into the ground. I would work weekends. I'd work really late. And I didn't do it because I wanted just to work hard. I did it because, um, you know, I felt like I wanted to change the world. I wanted to do something really exciting. I wanted to grow my company. And I felt like that would somehow, you know, make me happier, better or whatever it is. And, uh, after three years of doing that, I got really burnt out and I, you know, I realized like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm not, you know, building a social network. I'm very alone in my life. What am I doing here? And I did a lot of soul searching and thinking about, you know, why I wanted to do this. And one of the guys I thought a lot about was Steve Jobs because he's done, uh, you know, all this amazing stuff. He truly did change the world. And I do think that he um, just had just amazing taste more than anything else. Um, But one thing that really became clear for me, uh, especially in reading his biography, is that um, it's not... It's just not for me. He he lived this amazing life, but he um, he drove himself into the ground every single day, and it sounded like he was, um, you know, quite unhappy and treated people poorly in the process. Um, his his goal was amazing, and he accomplished it, but that just doesn't sound very enticing to me. Uh, and I guess what what I what I take from it is that um, I want to be just as maniacal about detail and execution and that sort of thing. But I really don't want to be loathed by my employees or, you know, have a mercurial temper uh, or, you know, have to get a biographer to write a book about me so that my kids will know why I did what I did. Um, So, yeah, I think he, you know, just an amazing, amazing guy. Um, But I realized that, you know, that's, that's a tough path to take. Definitely. I, I like what you had to say about there about Steve there. I, I think that you're exactly right. Like he he led a life of success, but at the expense of so many other things that are precious to to all of us. You know, among the things you said, like social network, kids, and um, yeah. and I guess ultimately health in in a sense. I mean, who knows? Totally. Um, so I, I think anybody who's listening out there, would you just say that that uh, success for you? Or happiness for you is to enjoy what you're doing, but not at the expense of uh, the people that you love or those that matter to you. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, flow, um, the reason flow is called flow. Um, There's a psychologist whose name I can't pronounce. It's Mihaly something or other. It's a very long string. It's Polish. Um, But the idea of flow, um, basically, it's when you have those moments where you're in the zone, where everything drifts into the background, where you lose track of time and you're you're challenged, but you know you have mastery of the thing that you're doing. Uh, so it could be chopping wood, or it could be designing something great, or you know being in a deep conversation with somebody. Um, 
But that what I realized a couple of years ago is that that was really what mattered. And as long as I did that in some form or another every single day, that I could be really happy. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think accomplishment um, and business and all this kind of stuff is is interesting because when I was younger, I kind of felt like, okay, so you, all you got to do is make a couple million dollars and uh, have a successful business and make sure everyone in your industry knows your name and you'll be happy. Um, but I got to know through our consulting business and um, just through the social network, a lot of people who, you know, they'd sold their company for a lot of money or they'd done really well. And ultimately I realized that they are just as happy as I am as the, and that we all adapt to, um, we kind of go back to a default level of happiness, it seems. And so I realized that, you know, accomplishment didn't really matter. Um, and so now I don't necessarily look at business as something that, you know, I need to do. I don't need to make a dent in the universe. I don't really care to make a dent in the universe. What I do care about is doing great work every day, um, employing great people and spending my time with them and having, you know, a group of friends who I, you know, care about and have a lot in common with. And I've just been so much happier since I let go of that kind of tread, you know, the treadmill of success. Man, that's that is awesome. I'm so glad you said that. I'm even proud to have you on the show to, to say something like that because that that to me is uh, is really just the way to live. And that's you almost said what I would want to say. I didn't know I'd want to say it like that, but that's the exact kind of life I want to live. I want to do great work every day, and I want to be around really? the kind of people that I enjoy being around. I don't. I I guess I care about making a dent in the world, but in a whole different case, I don't live to make a dent in the world. Totally. And if I do, yeah. then that's great. But. Absolutely. And you realize that, you know, someone who's a millionaire just wants to be a billionaire and someone who's a billionaire wants to be a multi-billionaire. Yeah. There's always going to be someone the next rung up. And so you always have this low level anxiety. I think people just don't look down often enough. They don't look, yeah. they don't look down and go, whoa, look how far I've, you know, look how far I've come. This is amazing. They're always looking up at the next thing and always having that low level anxiety around that. Yeah. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. That's for sure. No. I'm glad you mentioned flow though. Because I, I didn't realize that that's where you got the name from, but uh, in episode forty-three of the Web Two Point Show, I had a chance uh, at uh, FOA two thousand eight, Ryan Carson's uh, previous event uh, company. He did that. Uh, so Kathy Sierra was there. We had a chance to chat with her about creating passionate users, and she has this little phrase she says called uh, "allowing your users to kick ass." And she mentioned this state of flow in this book called Flow. And I think that's what you were referencing to. I can't pronounce his name either. I think it's Mahali. I don't know like how to say his last name. It's like C-Z-Y-H, something or other. Yeah, I never know. It's I a long know last that. name. But for yeah. the listeners, I'll I'll post this link in there because I think that's a, that book is on my wish list. It's 10 bucks at Walmart, so it, it's a good book to, to get to. But it's definitely about being at a level of focus. And that's so wild that you that you named your, your app around that. I didn't even think to ask you how you got the name Flow. Yeah. But uh, Andrew, uh, it was a, a pleasure to chat with you. We've we've chatted for about an hour and ten minutes. I know that sometimes these shows run a little long, but from what I've heard from the feedback I've gotten from my listeners is that uh, they want to hear it all, not so much have a condensed version of Andrew in thirty minutes. So I give them what they what they want to hear, and plus I get to take some benefit of of in learning about what uh, you enjoy doing in your life and and why so thank you so much andrew for coming on the show to to share with us all that you're doing i think the only the only question i didn't ask you would you might even be bummed out about it is you know what do you have going on at super secret right i was waiting for that um 
you know, I was thinking about that before I came on, and I, there's nothing I can really talk about. We've got a really, really exciting new Flow feature, but we also have so many competitors to Flow, and uh, I would, I know they would love to hear about what it is. It's launching in about three weeks to a month, um, but I just, I can't, I can't talk about it right now. But just watch our, watch our Twitter, check our blog. Uh, we've got something big in the works. Awesome. So follow Andrew on Twitter, follow MetaLab on Twitter, and it has something to do with flow. So that's your super secret thing. Um, I don't know. Um, I guess that's the way we'll close the show. So anything else you want to talk about, Andrew? Uh, no, that's that's great. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Yeah, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks.